Hi friends, thank you for joining us again for the ASP Stories weekend bonus episode. Join us on Mondays and Thursdays where we interview amazing guests where they share with us about their adventure sports and the amazing feats that they have done. But ASP Stories is where we get to listen in as authors read their adventure stories to us. So sit back with your hot cup of tea or coffee and kick off your adventure-filled weekend by listening in while we hear more from ASP Stories. Spring. Our first spring at 8240 seemed far too slow to arrive. March came and went with a few feet of additional snowfall. April showers were all of the snowy variety as well. Finally in May, the big melt began. As much as I enjoy the snow, my heart was longing for warm breezes and spring's flowers. Watching the snow levels shrink was good for my soul. Soon our winter wonderland was transformed into a temporary swamp. Since the ground is still frozen when the spring thaw begins, the water cannot soak into the soil at first. Instead, pools of water gather in every depression and small streamlets flow out of these and down the slope. A few days later, the ground does thaw, and what was too hard for a pickaxe back in April becomes a soft, muddy mess. Everything dropped during the long winter becomes exposed and covered with mud. Layers of dog poop that were hidden in the falling snow all thaw together. I find myself shoveling this slop. Shoveling the snow was more enjoyable but the promise of spring gives me energy enough to complete the task. There's also the matter of the garbage that the ravens scattered during the winter. On trash day, these overgrown crows race the garbage collector. They tear holes in garbage bags and dig out all manner of refuse in search of a tasty tidbit. The wind is not so picky. It carries the material rejected first by the humans and then by the ravens over the snow where it tangles in wild roses and wax currant bushes. Snow soon hides all this from view until May, that is. Spring is cleanup time. I wonder why people continue to leave garbage at the end of their drives without trash cans and lids. I fill a five-gallon bucket with tissues, paper plates, plastic bags, and fast food containers. For a moment, I feel as if I'm again living among the throngs of humanity in the city. But this once-per-year scavenger hunt does not take long. Natural beauty is soon restored. A few days later, Anne needs something from our storage area in our crawl space under the house. I drop through the trap door into several inches of icy water. In addition to the snow melt, heavy spring rains have started soaking the earth. There's simply too much moisture in the ground for our deep crawl space to stay dry. The water cramps my feet as I struggle to install a sump pump. Some boxes of old books were ruined, and other less permeable items require drying and stowing higher. We run this pump for six hours each day for a couple of weeks. Thousands of gallons of water are lifted from the crawl space. I purpose to engineer a more permanent solution. Spring is the time to regroup from the long winter. I enjoy the winter season immensely, but it is very long. We fight cabin fever during the winter with winter sports, but still the short days and long nights leave one yearning for more tolerant days. In the spring, this yearning is finally satisfied. The landscape is released from the icy clutches of winter, and it seems as if one can sense the ground heaving as it draws in deep breaths of warm sunshine. The earth is freed to grow its fruit, and our spirits are freed to frolic. Late spring snows that come during the night remind us that summer's not here. 
but these snows are liquefied in a matter of minutes as a warm sun blasts down from above. The snow melts off the pine boughs so quickly that it appears to be raining fiercely to the ground. Layers of snow on the forest floor are pierced by oversized drops of water that splat from above. Where the snow is melted, the sun strikes wet, brown pine needles mixed with soil. The moisture in this spongy concoction flashes into steam, and this vapor rises as the snow melts and falls. Unusual convection currents whip this thin fog into wispy ghosts dancing among the trees. Rays of sunlight steal through the pine canopy to join the dance, highlighting the action. The air is so moist that my lungs are coated on the inside. It feels good. I'm forced to sit on a rock and watch the show. Little could surpass this wonderful display choreographed by temperature and sun. The dance will not last for long. Soon the white snow will be transparent water trickling into ditches and streams. The ghosts will rise and vanish, racing to form clouds later this afternoon. I'm thankful for this rare display of nature's splendor. The whole earth breathes the breath of spring and is satisfied. Chapter 5 Of People and Places One of the joys of moving to a new locale is to explore the area and meet new people. It's the business of a weekend morning when no big plans for the day had been previously devised. On these mornings, I tend to wake up shortly after sunrise, and as the sleep slowly leaves me, I lay looking at the ceiling or out the window at the rich green pines, and I brainstorm. What to do? What to do? Hey, Ann, let's grab the kids, a picnic lunch, and hike up by the Moffat Tunnel. Buddy, let's sleep, comes the common response. How about you take the kids, and I'll stay here for just a little while. I tend to be a little too persistent. Hey, it's morning. Let's jump up and make a run for it. Buddy, comes a slightly edgy reply. Come on, let's go now so we can enjoy the day. Okay, you get up and get the kids ready and eat breakfast and pack the lunch, and then I'll get up. No way, I want to share the morning with you. Ugh. So goes the exchange until we're finally in the truck heading off at 11.30 a.m. for the early morning adventure. My wonderful wife is not lazy. She starts more slowly in the mornings, but builds up steam until evening. I, on the other hand, tend to follow the exact opposite energy slope. By 10.30 p.m., our roles are completely reversed. This is when Anne is full of ideas and dreams, and I'm barely able to lift my head. Many a night, Anne has begun to do the serious house cleaning around 10. Many a night, I've burned up the last of my daily quota of energy, trying to convince her to do it first thing in the morning. We laugh about our differences in biorhythms and appreciate the ways that our differences can complement each other in our marriage. The morning of the Moffat Tunnel outing was in the early summer. The air was quite cool, but the sun was brilliant. Around the house at 8240, there are only a few small patches of snow hiding from the sun in the shadows. The trip to the Moffat Tunnel took us over a mountain, down into the South Boulder Creek Valley, over another small rise to the town of Rollinsville, and then west down a long dirt road that leads to Rollins Pass. From the top of the first mountain, we gain a vista of a part of the Continental Divide. The divide is the high point in the continental U.S. that separates the watershed that feeds the Mississippi and the Gulf of Mexico from the watershed that feeds the Colorado River and the Sea of Cortez. This section of divide is composed of Roosevelt National Forest, the Indian Peaks Wilderness, and Rocky Mountain National Park, the view from our mountain sees from James Peak to the south all the way past Long's Peak to the north into the Mummy Range. On some days, 
one can make out the distant peaks to the north of the Mummy Range in Wyoming. This is a distance of between 75 and 100 miles. There are over 20 peaks in this range that are more than 13,000 feet tall. It's an impressive view, to say the least. On this particular morning, the view revealed my impatience in waiting for the long winter to clear out of the peaks. The mountains were still 90% white, and the Moffat Tunnel is at the base of these high mountains. There would be little hiking today. Snowshoes or skis would still be required. We continued on in spite of this fact in hopes of finding a sunny trail that would be mostly snow-free. We crossed South Boulder Creek, and although most of the ice of the winter had cleared the banks, the creek was not yet flowing at the thundering rake that signified the big melt on the divide. We would still find plenty of snow on this outing. South Boulder Creek runs at a flow rate of about 100 cubic feet per second for the majority of the year. During the early summer melt, this stream will flow at more than five times that level. There's a Class 5 kayak run below this particular crossing, with a few sections that even the Class 5 boater has to portage. Certainly, this raging stream is not for the inexperienced. A few more miles took us over the second small rise, away from and then back to South Boulder Creek again. As the highway approaches the creek, it intersects the Rollins Pass Road at Rollinsville. Rollinsville is an interesting, quiet, small community comprised of a general store, a bar, a few scattered houses. Also of note is a section of the Union Pacific Railroad where several side rails provide passing room for trains who must take turns negotiating the narrow canyon through which the South Boulder Creek and the railroad carve. This narrow canyon provides a little-known, milder Class 4 kayak run. Creek boaters can find plenty of challenges on this run at higher flows. At Rollinsville, we turned our old gold Bronco 2 off the pavement and headed west. This popular dirt road runs in parallel with the railroad in South Boulder Creek. It offers some impressive mountain scenery as one travels first through Toland, then on to the first switchback of Rollins Pass, or straight beyond the switchback to Moffat Tunnel. Toland is not the kind of place singles would frequent on a Friday night. It's merely a shy smattering of cabins lining this narrow dirt car path. However, at one time, in the long-ago days of the Wild West, the then-thriving Toland offered a booming tourist trade. People tired of the hot and dusty city would take the train to Toland for a day of breathing fresh, cool mountain air. With a little imagination, one can almost see the women with their dainty parasols and high-collared dresses, or the men in well-cut three-piece woolen suits. No doubt, a saloon would spill forbidden music into the street, and children would be dashing from boardwalk to boardwalk between tired horses. The air would smell of creosote and steam from the trains. Almost all the original town is gone, reclaimed by nature and the harsh winter elements. Toland also won brief fame when the G8 summit came to Denver in 1997. While dignitaries discussed trade relations, several of the dignitaries' wives, including the First Lady Hillary Clinton, took a scenic train ride through the Moffat Tunnel to Winter Park. As the entourage rumbled through Toland, some well-placed teenagers could not resist sharing twin moons with those on the train. Welcome to the Grand USA. Welcome to the teenage years. This episode of the Adventure Sports Podcast is brought to you by 180TAC.com. 180TAC manufactures premier backpacking and emergency products. Whether you need a backpacking stove for your week-long trek on the trail or an emergency stove for your bug-out bag, we have the tools you need. Visit www.180tack.com. 
We passed through Toland with no such greeting on this day. There is a very rough, steep, and narrow four-wheel drive road that travels south out of Toland. This hair-raising twin track quickly gains elevation until it arrives at Mammoth Creek Basin. From above this basin, there are incredible views of James Peak and Kingston Peak. Climbing the west flank of Kingston Peak, the road continues higher to Apex, a long-forgotten gold mining community northwest of Central City. Many a prospector pined away after gold in this part of the Front Range. Some, like the man who discovered what became American City, did strike it rich in these parts. We found the ride bumpy enough for our two young children on the Rollins Pass Road. No need to visit Apex today. We bounced on along to the Moffat Tunnel. The entrance to the tunnel is quite impressive. There is a wooden curtain blocking the entrance that is raised and lowered as trains come and go. Behind the curtain are some gargantuan induced draft fans which clear the air in the tunnel between trains. All around the tunnel entrance, the structures, trees, and rocks are blackened from the blasting, first, of coal smoke, then, of diesel exhaust, over many scores of years. The tunnel itself passes 6.2 miles through the Continental Divide. This tunnel was constructed to provide the much-needed alternative to dragging trains over the steep, slow, and frequently perilous turns of Rollins Pass. Additionally, this tunnel is home to a monstrous water pipe that supplies water from Grand Lake and the Colorado River drainage to South Boulder Creek. This water continues to Gross Reservoir, where it's rationed out for Denver's water supply. The arid climate and the rugged Rockies have required many such engineering feats. This day, the thunder of the fans urged us to gather up our lunch and to hike the trail behind the tunnel up into the peaceful serenity of the mountain forest beyond. Still, watching a train suddenly gush from the tunnel made us a little wary of crossing the tracks to get to the trail. Fjording the tracks quickly, we had just started to find the rhythm of a short walk when three to six foot snowdrifts blocked the trail. We pressed on past the first several of these drifts, only to find that the forest beyond was still shrouded by several feet of condensed snow. The surface layer of such spring snow is slightly more consolidated than the snow hidden beneath. The warm sun softens its initial layer during the day, and then cold nights freeze it firmly again. Beneath this layer, snow metamorphosizes from fine champagne crystals into a sugar consistency that will neither pack nor support any considerable mass. On the steeper slopes, just such a configuration of snow often produces massive slab avalanches. Every year, early season mountaineers fall prey to these carnivorous slides. In our case, the top layer was too thin to consistently support even Anne's light frame. Walking on such snow is a game of wits. For several steps, feet float cautiously on the surface of the snow. There's little danger involved, but one can never tell when one or the other leg will suddenly disappear into the snow. As one's trailing end follows to hit the firm top of the snow, the increase in human surface area impacting the snow stops the quick drop. We found ourselves repeatedly thigh deep, with our other knees pressed into our chests. Pulling the sunken leg back into the sun usually fills a hiking boot with a cold snow compress and requires lying either prone or on one's back. Standing up again is a balancing act in which neither arm nor leg should contribute too much downward force. After submerging arms to the shoulders and legs to the buttocks several times, a skilled hiker might regain his or her feet just in time to repeat the whole adventure a couple of steps later. It took us only a few such experiences to realize that we were not going to escape the drone of the fans. Oh well, 
The sun was warm, the trees were a rich, deep green, and the sky was a brilliant blue. We can enjoy our lunch, even if the background music of the wind and the birds was camouflaged. Spring often finds us pushing the season and enduring a compromised outing. But what fun it is to see where the snow line is and to ultimately find open trails that lead to pockets of paradise. A later trip provided us with much greater success. This time we opted to drive via Nederland, past Eldora, up another steep rock-strewn road to a trailhead that serves as a gateway to the Indian Peaks Wilderness Area. We churned up the narrow valley. It was lined by blue spruce and aspen. The icy cold snowmelt of Middle Boulder Creek splashed and played to our left. Starting up and around a steep rise, we caught a wonderful view of the creek where it sprang from a high slab of rock to fly freely for 20 feet or so before it dashed itself once again against the rocks of the creek bottom. I love waterfalls. Is it adequate to sit and look at such beauty? We stopped and I felt myself drawn by the fall. I climbed down the cliff to the point where the spray from the fall misted my sunglasses and the skin of my face. I breathed deeply the moist, moist air. The noise, the smell, the action, how invigorating. I look at waterfalls like this and I feel at the same time at peace and a little disturbed. When I was 10, my family took me and my sister to Yellowstone National Park. It was on this trip that I had first fallen in love with the mountains. We traveled from eastern Oklahoma through New Mexico, Colorado, Wyoming, and the Dakotas. It was one of the greatest gifts ever given by my parents. I learned to read maps on this trip. I was enchanted by the curvy lines on the oversized paper. I could smell the paper and the ink and the Carmex on my mother's lips as she showed me directions, highlights, mileage, and highway sizes. Soon I began to see maps as invitations to come and to explore. A blue line on a wrinkled slab of paper would transform into cliffs and trees and sky and water and animals beside the rural roads. The roads led us to Yellowstone and to the brink of a very high waterfall. As I hurried down the trail to the overlook, my father called up to me to walk directly to the parapet and to quickly look over. My dad has always been one who noticed his world. He knew some really neat ways to encounter it. I hurried to the railing and I leaned out over and I looked quickly down. I'm certain that my heart stopped beating for several seconds. Hundreds of thousands of gallons of water per second gushed from just below me out into a chasm so deep that one could hardly make out the shapes of the boulders and the trees at the bottom. The illusion of being swept away and thrown out into this abyss was powerful. Sheer terror, incredible adrenaline, mild vertigo, astounding beauty. The forces of the water. I was overcome by it. My father laughed as he approached the edge slowly. He had been there before. I could not leave. I wanted to stay for hours. It was both beautiful and disturbing. But now I'm no longer ten. Over three times that span has passed through my fibers and flowed through my veins. My heart has beat about 840,960,000 times since that waterfall in Yellowstone. Still, waterfalls always make me think of falling. I still shudder at being washed off the lip of some canyon wall only to become the mist that floats through the air at the bottom. The small fall that I stood in front of this day called me to encounter it. I've stood directly under waterfalls smaller than this one and let the icy water pound my shoulders and scalp. It's very difficult to stand in such forces. The water impacts with such enthusiasm that it will knock the unprepared off balance. 
What a rinse. I sometimes wish that my one-gallon-per-minute shower head would take lessons from these gushers. This fall could rinse my hair in a hundredth of a second. I kneeled on a boulder at the base of the falls, and I lifted the icy water from the creek to my face and hair. I let it run underneath my collar and down my back. I smelled the water's character as it dripped from my beard. Water is the life's blood of the earth. I know that the earth is just a planet. It's a monstrous coagulation of iron and other elements hurling through space at incredible speeds. But the earth is unlike any other planet that astronomers have discovered in that it's blessed with water that exists in all three states, solid, liquid, and vapor. The astounding balance of fluctuating temperatures that allows our water to visit us as snow in the winter and to melt in the spring is nothing to take lightly. The snowmelt eventually joins the vast oceans where it turns to vapor and returns again to these Alps. This cleansing cycle makes life possible on land. Without this perfectly fine-tuned balance, the entire population of trees, fish, birds, and beasts would be wiped out in a matter of days. The range of temperatures in the universe is astounding, and the ambient temperature of our biosphere occupies only the tiniest fraction of this thermal continuum. Absolute zero, about negative 459 degrees Fahrenheit, is the temperature at which almost all motion of atoms and molecules stops. We can think of this as the coldest point on the continuum. Scientists tell us that the average temperature on Pluto is somewhere around negative 378 to negative 396 Fahrenheit. Keep in mind that Pluto is still orbiting our warmth-giving sun. There are colder places in the universe. In contrast, the temperature in the center of the sun is around 25 million degrees Fahrenheit. The next planet closer to the sun from the Earth, Venus, has surface temperatures of about 890 degrees Fahrenheit. This is due to its thick atmosphere as well as its proximity to the sun. Mars, the next planet beyond the Earth from the sun, has an average temperature of about negative 67 degrees Fahrenheit. Temperatures at our home at 8240 range from around negative 30 on the rare coldest of nights to about 90 degrees Fahrenheit on the hottest hours of the hottest days. If the Earth was closer to the sun, if its atmosphere were slightly more dense, or if high clouds did not reflect the sunlight, the Earth could easily become too hot for liquid water to exist. Add more reflectivity, thin the atmosphere slightly, or shift the Earth away from the sun, and our water would stay solid ice. Standing in front of this chilling waterfall reminded me of how fragile our biosphere really is. If I were to get sick, doctors would likely draw some blood from my veins to look for a loss of chemical balance. If we want to know the health of our planet, we should look at its water. All the refuse of the human condition eventually gets into our water. Kayaking has made me much more sensitive to water quality. It's easy to drive by a river without thinking much of it, but try floating down a river choked by hydrocarbons, pet feces, cigarette butts, fast food wrappers, and soiled diapers. Worse yet, imagine the burning smell of sick water full of chemical waste. Human short-sightedness and gluttony truly are destroying our fragile planet. We seek a balance between nature and industry. We know that we have stretched the carrying capacity of the cities as a result of advances in technology, pluck fossil fuels from our industrialized system, and most of us would starve to death in short order. The water instructs us. It tells us that we are hurting the biosphere. Here, Middle Boulder Creek is close to its source. The water looks pristine. Still, only a few miles from the source, 
This water might be tainted with giardia, and its acidity is likely to have become altered by the smog captured by winter snows. Though not untouched, it is still in good health. Sensitive to my family, who's waiting up near the road, I reluctantly scale the low cliffs to return to the truck. Someday I'll return to this fall, or perhaps another, and I will sit at the base of the waterfall all day. I'll listen to its rhythm and seek out its testimony. I'm reminded of the lesson I learned as my family and I traveled through British Columbia. There we stood at the base of a monstrous cascading waterfall. Once again, I had to force myself to leave the scene. I picked up my 26-month-old daughter as we walked back to the car. I told her that the Creator speaks to us through His creation, and if we were to pay attention and listen long enough, we might understand what He's trying to tell us. This waterfall is not just so much water that happened to spill off a cliff. The forces of the creation that were placed into motion came together in this spot to form one of the most remarkable natural occurrences in the universe. Why is the creation like this? What is it that we should understand that we, that we don't understand? Lydia leaned her small head against my neck and simply said, It makes us feel better. Could it really be that simple? Were we designed in such a manner that our spirits are adjusted somehow, healed by the witness of nature? While I was seeking out the answers to existence, Lydia saw through this distraction. She understood. It just makes us feel better. Thanks for listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast and this bonus episode of 8240, One Family's Life Above the Clouds. We hope you guys enjoyed it and come back for another chapter. Please be sure to leave us a comment on our website at adventuresportspodcast.com or on Facebook at facebook.com slash adventuresportspodcast. Don't forget, you can also help to keep the show going by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash adventuresportspodcast. A lot of work goes into this show. We can certainly use your help to keep the great interviews coming. Until the next time, get out and have some fun. Thank you.